Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jenny Jones. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Real Hope. Um, and like Percy said, this is the last week of our Psalm series, um, and I have really, really, really loved this series. Um, next week, uh, actually, our lead pastor, which some of you will meet for the first time because you've started attending Real Hope over the summer, will be back from um, sabbatical. So he's been on a six-week sabbatical, and so um, he will be back next Sunday. I'm just sharing with us what the Lord showed him while he's on sabbatical, and so I know that we're all really excited about that. I can guarantee you nobody in this room is probably more excited about that than I am, however, so um, we're, we're excited to have him back. Um, so we are continuing in our Psalm series, and last week uh, we talked about what the Bible had to say about happiness, right, and how our happiness is tied to God's word, it's tied to the transformational power of prayer, Um, But ultimately, how our happiness is not tied to our circumstances, but needs to be tied to our identity in Christ, who Christ says that we are, um, why he created us, what's the purpose um, that we have here on earth, and that when we can really ground our happiness in that, and who Christ says that we are, then that leads to steadfast, sustaining happiness. And so I thought this morning, what I wanted to do was kind of swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. And I wanted to talk about something, talk about a topic that um, thankfully is less and less taboo in our society today. However, in my opinion, I feel like is a conversation um, that still does not happen enough in the church. And that's just the topic of mental health. Um, I want to talk about what the Bible has to say specifically over sadness and depression. Um, Now, I know you guys might be thinking, well, that's not going to be a very encouraging message. Um, But this is something that we all need to be really well versed in. Um, And honestly, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that we, especially if you call yourself a Christian, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you identify yourself as a believer, you're part of the local church. Um, This is a conversation that the local church needs to be involved in because it's an ever-increasing conversation that is happening in our society. Anywhere that you look in our society, current events, music, television, Um, wherever, literally, wherever you look, uh, self-help books, um, that whole scene. Uh, Mental health is a conversation that is happening. And our society as a whole is really looking desperately for answers around this topic. But here's the thing. We, as Christians, we, as the local church, we know the source of the living hope. And so why would we not be involved in that conversation? We have to be. And the reality of it is, is whether you've ever experienced depression, whether you've struggled with that, seasons of that, or not, there's a couple reasons why you need to know about this topic. And specifically, you need to know about what the Bible says about this topic. Um, Because the reality of it is, is that if you haven't personally struggled with this, someone that you care about or that you love either has, is currently, or will struggle with this. We need to know how to encourage them, how to come alongside them in those seasons. Listen to some of these statistics just um, that have to do specifically with mental health and, and depression. I got these from the World Health Organization. 
Uh, 300 million people around the world have depression. Uh, 17.3 million adults in the United States, equaling 7.1% of all adults in the country, have experienced a major depressive episode in the last year. 11 million U.S. adults experienced an episode that resulted in severe impairment in the last year, and it's estimated that 15% of the adult population will experience depression at some point in their lifetime. And listen, this is only data and statistics that we have on people that have received help, right? I mean, that's the only way you can kind of track things like this. So that's not even counting the people that are walking around kind of silently struggling through this illness, through diseases, due to mental health or due to depression. And the other reason that we need to be well-versed in this and in this topic is because, well, maybe you have not had a season of depression. We have all experienced seasons of deep sadness. No one is immune from that. And so we need to be able to go to Scripture and to lean on God's Word to minister to others, but honestly to minister to ourselves as well as we're walking through those seasons. Now listen, um, I want to preface the message with this before I go any further. I am not a mental health professional. Uh, I'm not a health professional in any way, um, or shape or form of the word, but specifically not with mental health. Um, And I would never claim to be. So I'm not going to claim that this message is going to be the formula to curing depression. I'm not, there's no possible way that I could do that in the next 30 minutes or maybe at all. Um, So if this is something that you have struggled with or you are struggling with currently, you're you're walking through this right now, I'm going to tell you right now, my very first piece of advice to you would be you need to seek out professional help. Um, You need to get connected to a really good Christian counselor um, or even psychiatrist, and we have great recommendations for um, those people. If that's something that you would like or something that you would need, talk to me after the service. I would love to recommend them to you. Um, I have been in counseling off and on um, throughout my whole adult life. It is so incredibly um, useful, and God uses it in huge ways. And so we would love to give you recommendations for people like that, or even if you wanted to write it on the back of your connection card and put it in the basket, um, we would love to recommend people for you to see that. That would absolutely be my first um, piece of advice. However, one of the themes that we have talked about throughout this entire series this summer is just the fact that God uses the Psalms to awaken and to really express and shape our emotional life. And so if that's the case, like we know it is, well then this includes positive emotions that God is using the Psalms to awaken and shape in our emotional life, but it also includes the wide range of not-so-positive emotions, more negative emotions that we walk through as human beings as well. And so it would only seem appropriate to go to the Psalms and study it for that as well. For not just the happiness and the blessing, but the depression and the sadness as well. Because here's the reality, God can, if we allow him, he can use any and all of our emotions as he writes our story of redemption for the whole world to see. And so that's what this psalm that we're going to be studying today is really going to show us. It's going to show us some insight into what can we do, how can we respond when we are walking through this this season. And like I said, 
this is important to know and to listen to and to dive into because if you're not walking through a season like that right now, you probably will at some point in your life. And the Holy Spirit can use what we're going to talk about this morning as a recall in that time, and specifically this psalm. So we're going to be in Psalm 42 today. Um, If you brought your Bible, begin to turn there. Um, The book of Psalms, basically, if you just take your Bible and you kind of open it to the middle, you're probably going to be in the book of Psalms, or at least really close. So just go to chapter 42. Um, If you didn't bring your Bible today, that's no big deal. We have them on the table for you. Um, You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those Bibles home. That's that's why we get them. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. Um, there is going to be, just so you know, one of the things we like to do here at Real Hope is we like to underline, highlight, um, you know, just really study and get into God's word. And so uh, we are going to have a significant amount of underlining. Um, so if you want to get your pens and your highlighters ready, um, as well as message notes that are in the basket, um, go ahead and feel free to do that. While you're turning there, while you're getting there, um, I want to talk about something that we don't typically talk about when we approach a passage of scripture, um, and that's a subtitle of the passage of scripture, right? I think a lot of people um, either just don't read the subtitle at all, or if you read it, you don't think it actually means anything, and you kind of just move along, right? Well, the subtitle of this particular psalm actually has two pretty insightful observations that we can make, and we can know before we dive into the actual verses of the psalm, okay? So I want us to read the subtitle, all right? So this is what the subtitle of this psalm is. It says, for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Okay, now you're like, that's why we don't read subtitles. That is not particularly insightful, right? Um, But there are two things that we can see from this subtitle, right? The first one is that the sons of Korah, so that you guys know, um, that was a group of priests that were charged with the ministry of singing, okay? So basically what we would call today like worship pastors, okay? What Caleb and his team does, all right, um, and we did look up to see if like a band had already adopted that name, Sons of Korah, which of course they had, um, but really that would be a cool band name. Uh, anyway, so um, they, that's what this group did. It's a, it's a group of priests that their job, their role was to lead music, lead the corporate worship time of worshiping God through music, and we know this to be true because it tells us in Second Chronicles. So in Second Chronicles, it's 2019, if you want to write that down, if you, if you care. Um, then it says, then, then some Levites from the Korathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Okay? So that's how we know that that's where this comes from, right? The second thing that we can notice um, in the heading of this psalm is that it's called a mascal. Okay, what's a mascal? Well, it comes from the Hebrew verb that literally means make someone wise or to instruct, okay? So when applied to this psalm, it means this is a song. We know it's a song because it's directed by the sons of Korah. This is a song that is meant to instruct. So this is a song that was sang on a corporate level, so sang publicly together in a group, and it was meant for instruction, It wasn't just meant for, you know, singing necessarily. It was meant to craft theology um, and craft uh, our instruction and our um, outlook toward God, all right? And so 
Um, that's what the, for the director of music, a mascal of Korah, that's, that's what it means. And so it tells us that this psalm, this psalm, Psalm 42, first of all, it's meant to be sung and it's meant to be instructive. So it only makes sense that I would now sing the psalm to you. That's, y'all love, y'all laughed. I didn't even say I was joking and you're like, ah, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, at all. Uh, however, Caleb and his team, they actually did write a song that he's gonna, they're going to sing as the response song after the message today, um, literally for this psalm. Um, and they, they wrote it as an original, so it's, they're going to do it for the first time today, which is really exciting. So I'm going to leave that up to him and his team. We're just going to read it together uh, this morning. And as we read it, I'm going to tell you some things to underline um, or highlight uh, that we're going to go back and talk through. So um, let's read it together. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this, and I actually want you to underline all of verse 1 and verse 2 as we're reading it together. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Verse 3, My tears have been food, my food, day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where's your God? I want you to underline this first half of verse 4. It says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God, under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Underline all of verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, the Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Underline this first half of uh, verse 8. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And then underline this first part of verse 9. I say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. All right, so what I'm going to do is that we're going to just walk through and kind of do an overview of this psalm, just break it down a little bit, specifically um, the areas that I had you highlight. Um, And then we're actually going to pull out uh, six things that the author of this psalm psalm does that I think are six things that uh, can be an example to us um, that we can follow through that can shape how we deal with our own seasons of darkness. So here's what we know is that externally, the author of this psalm, externally, his circumstances are very oppressing, right? Verse 3, it says that his enemies say to me all day long, where is your God, right? Then verse 10 says the same thing, only it describes it this time as a deadly wound. He literally says, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? And the taunt of where is your God obviously implies that something else is going wrong, right? Some, some negative circumstance or situation is happening in the life of this author that is leading these others, his enemies, to basically come to him and say, hey, listen, 
we see this, this, and this happening in your life. Where's your God now? So it's not just the external opposition of what people are saying to him. It's the external opposition of whatever he's walking through in addition to all the commentary from his enemies that's happening about this external situation. But then the internal emotional condition of the psalmist, we can see from the tone and the words in the psalm that is also depressed and full of turmoil, right? So his external circumstances seem to obviously be changing his internal condition to be one that is depressed and full of turmoil. And in verse 5 and 11, he literally describes himself as downcast. And then in verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. So he is so discouraged to the point where he's literally been crying day and night. And in verse 7, he says, to the point that it feels like he's drowning, right? It says, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Yet here's the thing that I want us to see, is that in the midst of all of this, he is still fighting for hope. Verse 5, he says this, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He's, he's, he's turning the conversation. He's talking to himself. He's talking to him, his soul. And he's saying, why are you, so like, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? But then he doesn't just stop at those hypothetical questions. Right after that, he says to himself, put your hope in God. He's talking again to his soul. He's saying, why are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed? Hey, listen, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And he says the same thing again in verse 11. So he's not surrendering to the motions of his discouragement. He's fighting back. So his external circumstances are oppressing. His internal circum circumstances, his internal emotional condition is depressed and is full of turmoil, but he's fighting back with hope. And the really remarkable thing about this psalm, I think, is that even though he's not where he wants to be, even though maybe his emotions are not lining up the way that he wishes they were, he's still fighting for hope. The last words of the psalm, and really the last words of even uh, the next psalm, they say this, it's verse 11, it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why disturb within me? And again, he says back to himself, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So he leaves us in this psalm still fighting for joyful experience of hope and freedom from this turmoil. He's not yet praising the way he wants to, but he's committed to the fight. So then, does that mean that this has a happy ending, right, for this psalmist or for even this psalm? Well, the answer, like in most life circumstances, is yes and no. It's mixed. Yes and no. Because we see that his faith is really amazing, his fight is valiant, but he is not where he wants to be in hope and in peace and in praise. And that's okay, one of the best lines that I've ever read about um, in, a, in a book, it's an amazing book, I'm going to quote it here in a little bit actually, um, is, uh, it's called Spiritual Depression is the name of the book. And one of the lines in that book, it says this, it says, hey, it's, it's okay to not be okay, it's just not okay to not do anything about it. It's okay to not be okay. 
And so that's what we see with this man, is him being honest and saying, listen, I'm not okay. These circumstances are not okay. But I'm still praising God, and I'm still fighting for hope. And this psalm is in the Bible by God's design. We know that. So if we listen to it carefully, if we watch how the psalmist is struggling through this, if we meditate on his instruction, on the instruction, the word of God, day and night, then on the one hand, we're going to have our emotions, but on the other hand, we're going to be able to allow them to be shaped by God. And then we will become, and this is what we studied last week in Psalm chapter 1, it gives this beautiful example of how when we are rooted in God's word, when we are committed to his instruction, that we are like a tree that bears fruit and whose leaves do not wither in the droughts of oppression and discouragement. And so what I want to do is I want to just study quickly six ways, basically, that this psalmist responds to this season that he's walking through. And see, in his case, this season was brought on about by his enemy, by taunts from the enemy. In our case, it's probably different. Now, it may not be. It may be because of what others are saying to you or the insider opinion that they're giving you in situations. But regardless of whatever is causing us walking through this season, these are still six responses we can look to as an example when we're walking through dark seasons. Um, So here's the very first one. It's this, is that he asked God why. He asked God why. Verse 9, it says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? And here's the thing, the word forgotten is really an overstatement in this verse. And he knows it, the psalmist knows it, okay? Because he says in verse 8, by day the Lord directs his love, at night his song within me, okay? So literally, he's saying in one breath, like, God, why have you forgotten me? But in the next breath, he's saying, no, I, 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 I feel and I interact with God in his presence, like in the day and the night. So what he's really saying here is he's saying that it looks like God has forgotten me. It feels like God has forgotten me. And if God hasn't forgotten me, then why are these enemies coming up and consuming me? Right, and here's the thing. It would be great if when we're walking through really hard times and seasons of darkness, if we could be really controlled and eloquent with our speech, but we're just not. We're just not right? We tend to misspeak a lot. And that's what's happening with this psalmist when I say that the word forgotten is an overstatement, right? I know for sure, I know this has been my experience before when I've come out of seasons like that and I've been able to look back and say, I know I, like it did feel like God had forgotten about me in that season, but as I look back, I can see his fingerprints all over that circumstance, He didn't forget about me. It just felt like he did, right? That's what this psalmist is saying. That's what he's getting to. So if that's the case, then why does he ask the question why, right? Like, if he's saying why, but then he's also experienced the presence of God, then why hasn't he just trained himself to basically take those feelings and shove them down 
knowing, oh, when I get on the other side of this season, I'm going to know that God was there, so I don't need to ask this question of why. Well, the reason that he's not doing that, the reason that he's asking this question of why, is because our interaction with God is a relationship. And no relationship can function on a healthy level without honesty and vulnerability. And so there's really two reasons why he's asking God this question, why, and why that's an example for us when we're walking through seasons that are tough, seasons of darkness, seasons of depression. The two reasons that he's asking this question, why, is one, because he's having a vulnerable, raw conversation with God. And that has to exist to have a healthy relationship, right? And then the second thing that he's doing is because there is something that happens when you take the narrative that exists in your mind and you actually say it out loud. Those thoughts, the lies that the enemy is putting in your mind, they lose their power when you say them out loud. Because you give yourself the opportunity to hear what you're thinking. And so he's saying out loud, God, why have you forgotten me? And what we can do is in those moments when we actually stop those thoughts from having the power that they have inside our mind, when we say those out loud, it gives the Holy Spirit the opportunity to combat that lie with truth. And that's what this psalmist is doing here. In our lives, it gives the Holy Spirit the opportunity to then speak and recall. Because remember, we've been meditating on God's word day and night, right? We talked about that last week. It gives us the opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind verses like Psalm 41.10, which says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we are reminded that God did not ever forget about us, but that we live in a broken world and what our enemy means for harm, our God can redeem and use for good. That's why he asked God why. Here's the second example that we can pull from this is that he affirms God's love for him. He affirms God's love for him. In the midst of his discouragement, he affirms God's sovereign love for him. Verse 8, it says this, it says, By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is within me, right? Verses 5 and 11, he calls God my salvation and my God. So he's saying, even though it looks as if God has forgotten me, I'm never going to stop believing in the absolute sovereign love of God, that God sees the bigger picture when I can't, that God sees how all the puzzle pieces fit together when I cannot. And that's what he's clinging to. That's what he's affirming. Right? Here's the third thing. It's simple, but it's powerful. He sings. He sings. He sings to the Lord at night, it says, pleading for his life. <laughs> and listen, this is not a song of, like, joyful hope. In, in fact, it's surprising that this was a song of corporate worship, right? Because it, it's, it's not really that uplifting of a song, if you can imagine this psalm being sung corporately. 
And it's because he doesn't feel joyful, but he's seeking hope despite not feeling joyful. This is a prayer song. It's a pleading song. It's a song that he says lines like, to the God of my life, like he's crying out. It says deep calls out to deep. This is a song pleading for his life. But isn't it amazing that despite whatever he's walking through, he's still singing, right? Not many of us, definitely, I know I couldn't, compose a song when we're discouraged and weeping day and night, but we can sing. This doesn't mean we have to compose the song. And this is why I think it's so important. I've talked about this before, but this is why it's so important that worship music is a part of our daily lives. That it's playing in your car, it's playing when you're getting ready for, you know, work, when you're working out, when you're at your office, whatever, wherever your circumstances kind of take you throughout the day. Not just when you're going through tough seasons, but even when it's just very normal average days. Because what's going to happen is that when you are walking through those tough seasons, that is a tool, that is an instrument that the Holy Spirit is going to use. These powerful lyrics to help express the emotion that maybe you can't even express, the Holy Spirit is going to use that to lead you in times of worship when you can't lead yourself in a time of worship. He sings. And listen, singing is not a sign of weakness, okay? Singing is a way in which we worship God. It is a way in which we connect with the heart of God that that very few other things in our life can produce. And that's why he's doing this. He's singing and he's crying out to God with everything that he has. Here's the fifth, or the fourth thing, I'm sorry, that he does. The fourth one is this, is that he preaches to his own soul. He preaches to his own soul. Verse 5, he says this, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he, he switches it, and he starts preaching to himself. And he says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Listen, this is a crucial element of our fight for faith. We must learn to preach the truth to ourselves. The book I was talking about earlier, Spiritual Depression, um, it's by a guy named Lloyd-Jones, and this is what he has to say. This is his commentary specifically over this psalm, Psalm 42. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, he's saying this man, the, the psalmist in Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. We have the incredible blessing that we're on this side of history versus the side of history that the psalmist was on. 
by being on this side of history, we know that the greatest ground for our hope is Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and then his victory over death. So we have to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's what this psalmist would have done had he been on this side of history that we're standing on. And here's kind of what it looks like. Again, being grounded in God's word, okay? This is the difference between like self-help and then using God's word, right? Using God's word to shape your emotions is just that. You're studying, you're meditating on God's word. It's written on your heart. And so when you say, when, when, when uh, Lloyd-Jones is saying, when we're saying preach to yourself, preach to your own soul, that means you are preaching scripture back to yourself as truth. This is what it looks like, right? I'm going to paraphrase um, Romans 8, 31 through 35. So if I'm preaching to myself, this is what it looks like, right? Self, listen. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how will he also not with him graciously give you all things? Who shall bring any charge against you as God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for you. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? That's what this psalmist would have written had he been on this side of history. That's why we have to learn to preach to ourselves. All right, here's the fifth one. He remembers past circum, or, uh, experiences. He remembers past experiences. He remembers past experiences. Specifically, in this psalm, he remembers past corporate worship experiences. Verse 4, he says this, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. There's so much that really could be said right now in, in response to that verse about the importance of corporate worship in our lives. Don't take these times lightly or these times for granted that we have the ability and the freedom to gather together corporately and worship God. That is not a reality for so many people around the world. And when this man, when this psalmist is thinking about remembering things to bring to his mind that will encourage him in this dark season, what does he go to? He goes to a time of corporate worship, going to the house of God. Because what we do here in this room, this is real. It is a real encounter with the living God. And God means for these real encounters with him to be a time of encouragement for us. We've said oftentimes here at Real Hope that we gather together as a community to be encouraged, to have life spoken into us so that we can then go out and scatter amongst our community and be that light amongst our community. So then how much more serious should we be about corporate worship being a priority in our life? Being a non-negotiable, right? And this is true for us as individuals, for sure, like when we're reflecting on ourselves. But this is also true for friends and family that are in our life as well. People that we come in contact with, that we care about, that we have, um, you know, working relationships with, whatever it may be. 
I have oftentimes left gatherings at Real Hope and I've thought to myself, that was so powerful. I wish every single person I knew was sitting in that room with me this morning. And that's driven me to reach out to friends and to family and to invite them to be a part of Real Hope and invite them to be here with me. And so this week, as following the example of this psalmist, I want to challenge you to something, something that has two parts to it. The first part is this, is that make corporate worship a um, priority in your schedule and in your life. Make it a non-negotiable for as much as you can. Because there is something that happens when we come together as a group of believers that just simply cannot be reproduced when you're on your own. And the second part of that challenge is think about three people this week that you can reach out to and you can invite them to come to Real Hope and be a part of Real Hope and what's happening here. And not because we want Real Hope to be made famous, but because you have no idea, or maybe you do, but you might have no idea what type of season that person is walking through. And you have no idea the fact that the Holy Spirit could use that corporate worship experience like he used it in the mind and in the memory of this psalmist to encourage that person for whatever season they're walking through or they will walk through. He remembers past experiences, specifically corporate worship, and how powerful that was in his life. And then here's the very last one. It's this, is that he thirsts for God. He thirsts for God. Verses 1 and 2 say it very, very plainly and clearly. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, my, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? What makes this so beautiful and such a crucial example for us is that this psalmist, he's not thirsting mainly for relief from his circumstances. He doesn't say that. And he's not thirsting mainly for escape um, from his enemies or for their destruction. He doesn't say that either. And it's not wrong to want relief from a circumstance and to even pray for that. And we've even learned throughout this series that it's also appropriate at some times to even be praying, you know, for your enemies, right? And for their circumstances as well. But the thing that is mind-blowing to me about this psalmist is this, is that more importantly than any of that, he doesn't pray for any of that. More importantly, what he prays for is that he prays for God himself. That in this depressive season that he's in, he has this thirst for God. He's crying out for God, that he wants more of God. And that's what happens when we think and we feel with God in the Psalms, the way that the Psalms describes, we allow our emotional life to be shaped by God the main result is that we come to love God, we want to see God, we want to be with God, but ultimately our full satisfaction is found in God being glorified. Nothing else. We become people that regardless of whether it's a time of joy and celebration, it's a time of um, sorrow or sadness, we still want to see God glorified, and we want to be with 
him. We want to have communion with him. We thirst for God. And that's really been my prayer, honestly, for myself and our church as we've been walking through this series um, in Psalms, is that God would simply be revealed in such a way that the only thing that our church would want and long for is for him to be glorified in this community. And that, that starts with individuals that long and want for him to be glorified in our personal lives. Here's what I'm going to wrap up with today. It's that I think that there is a narrative, um, this false narrative that we believe as a church um, that it's a sin to be sad. And that simply is not true. It's not true. There are several occasions recorded in the Bible in which Jesus himself was deeply saddened. There's three that came to mind as I was uh, researching and writing for this message um, this week. The first one is that when Jesus goes to Lazarus's house, and he's informed that Lazarus, who is one of his very best friends, has died. The Bible simply says these two words, that Jesus wept. Here's the kicker. He knew what was about to happen. He knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he didn't skip past the weeping and the hurting for his friend and the feeling the full range of sorrow in that moment. He was deeply moved to sadness. The second was when Jesus just gets through riding in on a donkey, people cheering for him, waving palm branches, giving him literally the entry of a triumphal king, praising him. All of that happens. Right after that, the Bible tells us that he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. And he's not weeping because, like, he feels like he's personally about to be rejected, like his feelings are going to get hurt. He's weeping because he knows that these are people that he and his father dearly love, and they just don't get it. And that by rejecting him, they're not just rejecting him personally. They're rejecting God and they're rejecting the amazing gift of eternal life. And he cries because he's moved so deeply with sadness. And then the last kind of scene that we see where Jesus does this is right before his crucifixion. He's literally, the Bible tells us he's literally sweating blood. He's crying out to God and he's just simply saying, if there's any other way that this can happen, that this can go down like, now's the time, God. <laughs> now's the time. And so we have these three instances where we look at Jesus in and of himself, and he is weeping for his friends, he's weeping for his people, and he's weeping for himself. Being sad is not a sin. Sadness is not a sin. In fact, we should allow ourselves to feel the fullness of the emotion of sadness. But here's the thing, in the process of doing that, we also have to cling to the truth that God has never left. He has not forgotten, and he never left. And we have to be faithful in handing over those emotions to the one that is described like this in Hebrews 4.15. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, 
but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The beauty behind that verse right there in Hebrews 4.15, the beauty behind it, that for us today is this, is that we can be honest with God regarding our emotions and we can trust him. We can pour those out to Jesus because listen, he knows what it is like to feel every emotion and be tempted in every way. We do not serve a God that cannot relate to us. We do not serve a God that is irrelevant. Scripture tells us that he can relate to us in every way. It's quite the opposite. We serve a God that has experienced the heaviness of humanity. And he laid down his life in such a way that we now have access to the Father, even in times of struggle. And so we can trust him with our emotions, we can be transparent, we can be vulnerable, and then we can allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us in those times. So what I want to do, just to wrap up, is I want to just pray for you guys that are in this room. Because again, I mean, here's the deal. A room this size, statistically, there are some of you that are walking through seasons of depression right now. You might have been for a while, and it's getting heavy, and it's overwhelming. And again, for those of us that maybe aren't in that season right now, we very well could be. Or God could be asking us to encourage and minister alongside people in our life that are. And so I just want to pray for us to be equipped for that. And just want to pray for our community as well. So let's go ahead and do that together. If you guys would pray with me.